You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. Hey, it's great to be back. I've been on a uh, small study break for about uh, four weeks, and I'm back this Sunday. Glad to be uh, thrilled, really, to be back with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Experts, people that study marriages, have said something to the effect of that about two years in, for most couples, is when the boredom factor starts. And that boredom factor is when all the newness is worn off. And that's a really vulnerable time for marriages. It's when something outside the marriage can look very alluring and very tantalizing. Um, I remember specifically the time, a vulnerable time in uh, Louise and I's marriage. It was a little longer than two years in. But we were pretty deep into responsibilities, and those responsibilities took us separate paths. And uh, it took a, a, a correction to address that and to, uh, to deal with that. And it could have been, you know, just terrible things can happen if we don't stay connected, don't stay close. And, and couples can very quickly grow bored with one another. Well, that's also true in our relationship with God. People can become And grow bored with God. The book of Judges is actually a story of people growing bored with God and the tragic outcomes of that. Now it also points to hope. and We'll look at that all throughout our series. It points to the hope of being able to make that relationship new again. Now the book of Judges, a couple of facts about it. It begins with the death of Joshua. Joshua was the successor of Moses. It spans about a period of 200 years around 1200 BC. It's written between the time of uh, Moses and then the rise and the emergence of King Saul. So it begins with the death of Joshua, but just as significant is the end of the book, which says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a commentary of spiritual and political anarchy. But even in that statement, there's something very interesting. Because in this conclusion, the writer reveals his ache. He reveals his longing for a new and for a better king. And this seemingly hopeless ending to the book, which, by the way, when we get to the end of the book, we will be wincing at reading it aloud. Truly, we'll be wincing. We'll, be, we'll feel embarrassed to read the Scripture aloud at the end. And yet this hopeless, seemingly hopeless ending pushes this book down the pathway of redemptive history towards finding that king. Now, to appreciate Judges, we have to first go backwards a little bit. And we have to look into the book of Joshua, the book preceding Judges. The book of Joshua details the journey of God's people after escaped, they escaped slavery in Egypt. 
And it is a story, it charts out the initial conquest and taking of the promised land in what is now modern day, roughly modern day uh, Israel. In chapter 1, the outline of the land is given to them. They are commanded to be strong and to be courageous. And so the people under Joshua's leadership, with faith in God's power, begin. And they begin to defeat their enemies. And they take cities like Jericho, you may have heard of that. And they take portions of the promised land. And they begin to enjoy the blessing and peace and freedom from their previous slavery. People are excited about their relationship with God. And the various tribes begin to settle into their inheritance. Yet there's much more land to be taken. And this brings us to the end then of the book of Joshua and his final charge. And for us to understand the book of Judges, we've got to look at it through this prism. It's in Judges, or Joshua chapter 23 beginning in verse 1. And will you stand so we can, as I read the Word of God, read the Scriptures. Verse 1. Joshua 23. The years passed. And the Lord had given the people of Israel rest from all their enemies. Joshua, who was now very old, called together all the elders, leaders, judges, and officers of Israel. He said to them, I am now a very old man. You have seen everything the Lord your God has done for you during my lifetime. The Lord your God has fought for you against your enemies. I have allotted to you as your homeland all the land of the nations, yet unconquered, as well as the land of those we have already conquered, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. This land will be yours, for the Lord your God will himself drive out all the people living there now. You will take possession of their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. So be very careful to follow everything Moses wrote in the book of instruction. Do not deviate from it, turning from the left or the right. Make sure you do not associate with other people still remaining in the land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship by them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God as you have done until now. For the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations for you, and no one has been able to defeat you. Each one of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy. For the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away from him and cling to the customs of the survivors of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry with them, then know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out of your land. Instead, they will be a snare and a trap to you, a whip for your back, thorny brambles in your eyes, and you will vanish from this good land the Lord your God has given you. This is the word of God. I'm sorry, not quite. Verse 14. <laughs> Forgot one verse on the next page. His conclusion. Soon I will die, going the way of everything on earth. Deep in your hearts you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one 
has failed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, standing here before you as the gathered church, we worship you. We place you in the center. And like the planets revolve around the sun, so, Father, we revolve around you. You are the center of our lives. And, Father, remove any obstacle, whether it's in my heart or the hearts of my friends, from hearing, believing, and responding to your gracious and kind and holy words today. Father, ignite our hearts with the excitement and engagement of knowing you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, finally we get to Judges chapter 1 after a very lengthy introduction to our series. These first two chapters are an overview of the entire book. And I want to raise three points and follow up each with a question and then the answer. The three points are the command, their response, and their justification. First, the command. Why did God command Israel to drive out the Canaanites? Now, a first point, a first uh, observation we should make, this is important for us to comment on, and I will go a little deeper in the uh, uh, ensuing weeks on this, but I want to address more directly this troubling question of how could God, a gracious God, call for war and call for bloodshed? We want to talk about that particular question. What happens here is potentially offensive to 21st century sensibilities. But suffice to say for now, for today, this is not an economic campaign. This is not an imperialist venture. This is not Israel taking vengeance for past wrongs like we see happening in the Middle East today. This is not ethnic cleansing like we see in the sub-Sahara today. Two quick examples. We find that Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, and the Kenites, who were not Israelites but were closely related, they were allowed to settle in the land, though they were not ethnically Jews. At the heart of this command was God's desire to, for Israel to be free from the moral corruption and free from the religious practices of the nations around them. You know, one of the most outstanding characteristics, a defining characteristic of the pagan worship in the ancient Near East was child sacrifice. And every family sacrificing a child. God did not want his people to be defined by such violence. Rather, God was seeking to bring something entirely new to the world through Israel. A vibrant community based on individual holiness. A picture of ethics and justice based on love rather than honor and shame. And worship to the real creator God, grounded in truth and grounded in spirit. All of this was unknown to the uh, Near Eastern ancient world. If the people of God grew bored 
in their journey of faith, if they were transfixed and led astray by their materialistic and prosperous neighbors, if they were enamored with their quick-fix gods touting promises of success, better land, more rain, better jobs, better sex, then God knew that Israel could be easily led astray. And the glory of God seen through them to the ancient world, that witness, would be lost. So, that's the purpose of the command. That's why the command to drive out the nations existed. Secondly, what was their response? What did they actually do with this? And this is where we begin to see now in the text. In verse 1 of chapter 1, they did a good thing. After Joshua died, they inquired of the Lord, Father, what should we do? And the Lord tells them to begin this, to reignite their conquest, and the tribe of Judah was to begin. And in verse 4, in verses 8 through 10, things appear to be staying on course. And in verse 12, the writer narrows in on one family. They represent... I think this is why the author put it in here. They represent the kind of faith that God is looking for. It is the family of Caleb. Now, Caleb had a very celebrated history. Along with Joshua, they were the only two survivors of the previous generation that for 40 years had wandered in the desert. And you remember why God allowed them to survive. Because they had been the only two spies at the initial part of that conquest to go survey the land and to come back and say, yeah, there's giants. But with God's help, we can take them. With God's help, we can defeat those giants. And so Joshua and Caleb were rewarded by God to see the promised land. And so Caleb here resurfaces in verse 12. Let me read this first. Look at the passage with me. Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Perhaps Caleb believes there needs to be a little more motivation here for this. And so Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Canaz, was the one who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. When she married Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. That's one request. And that was given. Here's the second request. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What's the matter? She was obviously troubled. There was something about that land given to her at the request of her husband that did not satisfy her. She said, Let me have another gift. You have already given me land in the Negev. Now please give me springs of water too. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Caleb sees obstacles as opportunities to believe God. What are obstacles and insurmountable to others are opportunities in Caleb's mind to believe God. The outcome of his faith is not to focus on the human odds of winning, but rather to say, hey, this is tough, this is challenging, but with God's help we can do it. With God's help we can do it. Caleb here, at the end of his life, Joshua's dead. 
Caleb has not given up his faith. As a matter of fact, he wants his daughter to marry a man who has that same kind of faith. And we also have a woman of faith, Axa. Like father, like daughter. She boldly asks for a blessing. The land was the land of the Negev. That was desert. She knows she's going to need water to provide for her family. And so she asks her dad, hey, give me this water spring so that I can provide for my family. And he does it. Caleb gives it to her. Again, here we see these pictures of what the ideal faith that God was looking for. Now, look at verse 19. Because with a few exceptions, what we've just experienced is about as good as it's going to get throughout the entire book. Verse 19, and here is, this symbolizes, this verse I think really captures in many ways the tenor of the book, at least the beginning of it. The Lord was with the people of Judah. Okay, good, blessing. And they took possession of the hill country. Great, going well, stepping in. But they failed to drive out the people living in the plains. Why? They had iron chariots. There's some obedience. There's some faith. But then common sense takes over. Surely we cannot overcome iron chariots. This was new technology. This is an ancient version of one team having cavalry, men riding horses, and the other team having tanks. Yes, God can open up the Jordan River for us to safely pass through. But iron chariots, Lord, those are beyond us. And by the way, why take the risk? Frankly, we already have sufficient land for our families. We don't need any more. You see the subtle compromise here. There's some obedience. There's some devotion. There's some discipleship. But then there's a pulling back. Their compromise reveals what? Their compromise reveals that they did not grasp the larger picture of what God was wanting to do in the world. Once their needs were met... They settled in. They are focused on their five-acre piece of security. Not on the commands of God. Not on the promises of God. They've missed that larger picture. I remember when I sold real estate in Portage County, I worked for a man who understood. He was a 10th grade educated man, and he was probably one of the wealthiest men of the county. And you know why he was? He understood that the average guy and gal, the average family, if they could have five acres, they'd be as happy as could be. And so he'd buy a 200-acre farm, a 100-acre farm, and he would get as many five-acre lots out of that as he possibly could. It would go 150 feet one way and 2,000 feet the other way, (laughs) literally. But he knew that there was something magical about, I've got five acres. This is what they had. They had their five acres. They settled in. We're good. We're good. And they make a strictly military calculation. They have iron chariots. We have spears and javelins. They win. We lose. And we've got enough. And hey, our Philistine neighbors won't be that bad, will they? 
And so they go against the desires of God. They settle in. They've done enough. And so it was for the, the same for the rest of the tribes. If you look in your Bibles and just look at the end of the paragraphs, there's a title given first of the tribe, and in almost every case it says, and they did not completely drive them out, and they did not completely drive them out, and they did not completely drive them out, one after another. And that leads to our third point, which is their justification. And the question that seems to be raised is, didn't we do enough, God? Didn't we do enough? We took some risks. We had some battles. We beat some giants. And now we have our five acres. Didn't we do enough? In their self-satisfaction, a special messenger comes from the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. We don't know the context, but the writer tells us the messenger spoke to all the people. And the arrival of this divine messenger must have been spectacularly powerful and ominous. This is not the feathery, overweight, half-human, half-divine being that we call angels. The divine messengers in the Bible evoked fear. And sometimes the messenger of the Lord, Lord may have been the Lord himself. Listen to his words that he speaks, and listen not only to the words, but listen particularly to the emotions. Verse 1, chapter 2, The angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called that place Bochim, which means weeping. And then they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Several things about this. You see again the heart of why God made his command. They were not to make covenants with the people. You can see that what they did was when they moved in and settled in, they actually ended up making alliances and building relationships. And they did not destroy their altars. Which is what God had intended them to do. Another thing. Why did the angel of the Lord come from Gilgal? What is significant about that? This is very important because Gilgal had an exalted place in their memory. Coming from Gilgal was like saying to the people, it's like, it's like, it's like saying to a, a spouse who is ready to betray their spouse, remember your vows, remember your covenant. For Gilgal was the place after they crossed the Jordan where, where Joshua reinstituted the covenant. And he had all the men who had never been circumcised. 
I'm glad we have a, we have a different uh, medium today. These are, older, these are not children. He had all the men who had never been circumcised, circumcised. And this was a reinstitution of the covenant, a renewal of the covenant, which they did at Gilgal. It was a very solemn and somber place where God renewed his pledges to the people and the people renewed their pledge of faithfulness to him. That's what it meant. The people wept in this place when they heard it, heard him. They were sad. They were demonstrative in their worship. They gave of their tithes and offerings. And on the surface, this appears like a real turnaround. But do you know that this is the last time in Judges something like this will take place? It will not take place again, even though things will get progressively worse. Their repentance was very short-lived. Tears, enthusiastic engagement in public worship, even public confessions or the giving of tithes, none of those are a sure indicator of genuine repentance. Repentance is measured by genuine change. By change. A person may be sorry in the moment, but what are they sorry for? Are they sorry they got caught? Are they sorry that they can no longer avoid the consequences? Are they sorry that they spoiled their image of themselves? Or do they weep because they have grieved the God who loves them? Or do they weep because they've done real damage to another human being? It is the, last, the latter repentance that produces the integrity of character that God desires. It's a silly analogy, and not, hopefully it will never happen to any of us, but imagine being told that you cannot have chocolate. It's awful. Your doctor tells you, if you keep eating chocolate, you will not live another year. And he tells... Your friend, that as well. Another person, he tells the same thing. And one person cries, weeps, slams their fist against the wall, but wakes up the next day and decides to eat chocolate anyway. Another person makes no sound when she hears the news, no weeping, no demonstration, no special sacrifices, But she quietly resolves to never eat chocolate again. And she doesn't. In the end, who has repented? Change is the measurement of repentance. Now I want to return to this section in chapter 2 in just a moment. But let me just uh, tease out an application for us. And it's a question that we must all ask and at points does genuinely concern me. And that is, have you settled? Have you settled? Are you self-satisfied? Perhaps you came to Christ with a great need 
anxiety or depression or your marriage was falling apart or your finances were, were, were in, a, in, a, in a mess. And you cried out to God and he rescued you. And now you're in a good place. And so you figure, I'm good. My needs are met. There's no need for me to stretch or to press myself or to live for God. There's no need for me to give myself to evangelism or to respond to the brokenness of our world or to seek to remedy or alleviate suffering. The driving source for my coming to him is satisfied, and so I'm just going to settle in. If that is your view, you're missing the larger picture of what God is wanting to do in this world. Or perhaps you believe you've done enough. There may be some of you in this camp. I've done enough. I've done my part. Maybe, maybe, you, were, maybe you were never truly appreciated for all that you did. Maybe your service was, you felt like it wasn't fruitful or personally fulfilling. And so you've told yourself, I've done enough. Yeah, I got, sure, I've got 15, 20, 25 great years yet, but you know what? I've done enough around here. I've given enough to the kingdom of God. And you've given yourself permission and license to coast, to drift. No need to stretch or to press or to risk or to be brave again. No need to fight giants or take more land. I want to say, you're missing it. You're missing the bigger picture of the glory of God that he desires to manifest through your life and the corporate witness of the church. I wonder how many of you are settling. I wonder how many of you are coasting. I wonder how many of you are beginning to drift or are drifting now. I wonder how many of you are bored with God. And why are you surprised that all of a sudden, all of the attractions and allurements of this world all of a sudden seem tantalizing to you? Why are you surprised? You're standing on dangerous ground. Uh, Marriages that drift stand on dangerous ground of adultery, of someone else coming in and wrecking that marriage. In the same way, when we get bored with God and let ourselves drift, we're in dangerous ground of committing spiritual adultery. You tell yourself, I can't forgive that person. I can't help the needy. I can't give more. I can't risk sharing my faith. I can't resist that temptation. Is it that you can't or is it that you won't? In many cases, if we tell the truth, it's really the latter, isn't it? It isn't that we can't. It's that we won't. We are covenant breakers. We are covenant breakers. And where do we go? Where do we go when we become aware we are covenant breakers? Go back to verse 2, I believe it is. At the end of verse 2 in Judges 2. This is an amazing phrase. The divine messenger says of God, what is this you have done? Or why are you doing this? Can you sense and feel here in the emotions, the tension? It's as if God is saying, look at the dilemma you've put me in. 
hey, I had promised to give you the whole land. But I've also sworn I will not give it to a disobedient people. What am I to do? On one hand, God is just and cannot let evil go unpunished. On the other hand, he cannot let go of the people that he loves. This is a tension that we'll keep coming back to in the book of Judges. And frankly, it's, it's not resolved in Judges, nor is it ever resolved in the Old Testament. It's only in the cross of Jesus that we can see this tension resolved. And the really beautiful verse here is Romans 3.26, which says, Paul says that the cross... That through the cross, God is both just, he holds us accountable for our sin, and that he is the justifier. He makes us righteous through Christ. On the cross, God imputed or placed our sin debt on the body of Jesus. Now think of all the times you've broken your covenant with God. God's laws. And if you're this morning not aware of what God's laws are, well then think of the times that you have broken or changed or rationalized your own standards for yourself. You know, your conscience is the source of those standards. And imperfect as the conscience may be, the conscience is still an echo of the divine call to give God his rightful place in your life. Think of the times that you've broken your own standards. Are you broken the covenant of God? Breaking promises to others, breaking promises to yourself. All of this, all of this, all of this. Breaking God's standard, breaking your own standard. It was all imputed. It was all placed onto Jesus the Christ. And he paid in his death that debt for your sin so that you can become new and clean and just before God. Now to close out the message portion here this morning, I want to give you a picture of the resolution of this problem that we call the the gospel message in a real life scenario that will help us get a hand on what this means, get get our heads around what this means for God to be both just and the justifier. So, you want to see if this will work, Gail? Okay.
Isn't that a beautiful picture of what the gospel is? The amazing love and compassion of God. Nick, you guys can work your way up the band. I'll just say this in, in concluding that. God as judge holds us accountable, but he comes to us in the person of Jesus who crawls into that small cell of our lives. And if we've received the forgiveness that he offers, he will join us where we are. He will tear down the walls between us. He will eat with us. He will talk with us. He will connect us to ourselves again. He will restore the relationship that we were designed to have. Going back to that kind of love is what will make the love of Christ new every day. It will keep that relationship alive. And you will find new motivation and new power to keep the pledge you made on the day of your baptism. To renew that covenant. To keep his love as the first love. And to not grow bored with God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and we're going to sing together and worship him in response. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you did as the judge and the justifier. It's a beautiful thing. And we praise you for it, Father. We ask you to lead us where... any of us are today in the next step that you desire and long for us to take as your sons and daughters and maybe some today, Father, that will become your son and daughter for the first time. We offer to you, Lord, our resources. This offering is a way for us to say we love you. We appreciate what you've done in our lives, our song, our prayer. They are offerings to you, for you have set us free. And Father, as well today, we want to pledge to you our faithfulness. We want to remember our baptism, remember our vow, to follow you all the days of our lives, and to press and to stretch and to risk and to be brave for you and for your kingdom. Because we love Jesus Christ so much. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We'll take our uh, we'll take our offering here and if there's something that you want to communicate to us by virtue of a prayer request or a commitment this morning, uh, something you want us to be aware of, uh, communicate to us through that connect card. You can just drop it in the basket here as it goes by.